0: This episode of the I Save That podcast discusses a photograph that was posted on Instagram by world-renowned tennis pro Sir Andy Murray. That photograph shows two vascular access devices in his arm following successful hip uh, resurfacing surgery. If you would like to see that photograph as well as the annotations that were added by the clinical experts at the Association for Vascular Access, please visit www.avainfo.org slash Andy Marie You have arrived at episode two of season two, the I Save That podcast presented by the Association for Vascular Access. This is Ramsey Nazarala with Ava, and we are here today because Andy Murray got his right hip resurfaced and then had the audacity to share a photo of himself in recovery that showed off the vascular access care he received as part of his medical treatment. Uh, The the association decided that was a great opportunity to educate the masses on uh, proper care and maintenance for vascular access. We pushed out the Photo of, of that uh, Sir Sir Andy Murray had shared uh, of himself on Instagram. We added some annotations, some backgrounds, and some references, and uh, it went viral. Uh, we spent uh, the majority of today. Today is, is Thursday in the states, talking to a whole series of news outlets, explaining our position and, and what exactly Ava tends to do. So uh, we have a we have a panel of of all stars and, and experts to talk about what happened uh, with uh, Sir Andy and optimal vascular access care and maintenance, and I'm going to open by just giving some background for for what Ava is trying to do here. Over 90% of uh, the people admitted to hospitals undergo a vascular access procedure, but that's not why they're in the hospital. People are admitted for cardiac surgery or organ transplant uh, to, to deliver their baby for countless reasons, and they get a vascular access device like a peripheral IV, which is so ubiquitous that it's the most common invasive procedure in healthcare. In Andy's case, he went to the hospital to have his right hip resurfaced, and he posted that photo to Instagram from his hospital bed, and it's a bed without railings and a room with a telephone, so decidedly not in the operating theater and probably not in a room adjacent to the operating theater, but, but in a ward after he was done and in recovery. And so with that context, let's, uh, let's take it to our panel, and we'll introduce, we have a whole bunch of people from around the world uh, to join us today. Uh, first off, Judy Thompson.
1: Hey, Ramsey. Great to be here. So I am Judy Thompson. I'm the director of clinical education for AVA, and I'm calling in from San Diego, California.
0: Thank you, Judy. Uh, Josie Stone.
2: Uh, This is Josie Stone, and I'm speaking to you from Salt Lake City, Utah. I am a nurse practitioner and a clinical education consultant with a specialty in vascular access. And Sheila Hill.
3: Hi, Ramsey. I am a director at large for um, the Association for Vascular Access, and I am in Dripping Springs, Texas
4: as we speak. Thanks, Sheila. We're also joined uh, by Stephen Rowley. Hi, Ramsey. Yeah, I'm uh, Steve Rowley, clinical director for the Association for Aseptic Practice, uh, based here in London, but supporting safe aseptic practice internationally. And we're also joined by Andrea Owens.
5: Greetings to all of you. I am a university educator. I'm actually an assistant professor of nursing here in Indianapolis, Indiana and Presidential Advisor on the AVA Board of Directors.
0: Thank you, Andrea. We're also joined by Dr. Ken Simington. Thank you for getting me on this call. I really
6: appreciate it. I'm in the very cold city of Philadelphia on the coldest day of the year here in the United States. Uh, i from the area of Spokane, Washington. And I'm also the President of AVA for 2019, and I'm an interventional radiologist.
0: Thank you, Ken. Uh, we are joined by Shelley DeVries.
7: Hi guys, thanks so much. Um, My background is hospital and molecular epidemiology, currently serving as a senior infection control officer, but spending my time at the intersection of vascular access, hospital epidemiology, and patient safety, and I am outside of Chicago.
0: Thanks, Shelley. Uh, We're joined by Russ Nassoff. Hey, Ramsey, Uh, welcome. Uh, Thank
8: you for inviting me. I am a a healthcare attorney and and risk management uh, expert in healthcare. And I'm also the treasurer of the Association for Vascular Access and a former member of the Board of Directors and currently
0: sitting in Balmy, Las Vegas. And and finally, uh, we are joined by Jocelyn Hill.
9: Hi, everyone. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I'm from Vancouver, B.C., Canada.
0: And Jocelyn, what do you do?
9: Sorry, I'm a nurse educator for Vascular Access uh, for inpatient units, which is a large teaching hospital in Vancouver as well as a large outpatient population in uh, the Lower Mainland here. And I really wanted to bring the the photo forward uh, because it really concerns me when things like that get posted internationally at a very um, general level for a broad audience. Uh, when things like that on on social media as well as on television show up, and they often do. So I think for the general public to see things like that, uh, it was extremely impactful and, and definitely an opportunity for us to, uh, to use to support best practice.
0: Thanks, Jocelyn. Opening it up to our, our panel, uh, the, when, when Jocelyn first shared the photo of, of you know, this world-renowned tennis player showing his right arm, and he's a right-handed uh, professional athlete, with what appeared to be, I think, two peripheral IV cannulas in it, one with visible blood in the tubing and a dressing that was clearly not intact. What was the first thing that went through your minds and what, what did you want to say and what were those feelings like uh, seeing something like that on on a platform that global a global platform uh, andy murray had already had three hundred thousand likes to that photo by the time we saw it
1: my first view of it was i looked at the dressing and went oh my gosh and then i looked at the two cannulas in what appears to be a cephalic vein and went, that's not good either a lot of things hit right away but I think my first first concern is he's a professional tennis player and we went into his arm with I'm guessing no ultrasound to see if there might have been a nerve right there. And we could have ended his career with one poke if we would have hurt a nerve right there. So my first thing is why would we would we put a peripheral cannula in a professional tennis players dominant arm. So that was my one of my first things. I went right to tennis. I played a little bit of tennis back in the day. So that concerned me. And then I looked at the dressing and the dressing was non-occlusive.
7: Yeah, I will say I had uh, I had a very similar reaction. And when I saw this picture, I was actually sitting at a hospital bedside with my own father looking at his peripheral access. And we just have so far to go. and And we're all fighting for our patients and their safety. And looking at this picture, as you mentioned, those dressings are the first thing that hit me as we we struggle to ensure that our dressings do, in fact, stay clean, dry, and intact to prevent um, or reduce to the lowest possible level the risk of microorganisms migrating into our, our catheter sites and looking at that blood backed up in the tubing. It, it, it frightened me, and the the smile and the pride in the picture really concerned me of, how little we have done to educate our patients of perhaps the risks they face when they come in um, for a procedure—not not expecting vascular access potentially to cause, as you mentioned, career limiting—and and it's fortunate that that didn't seem to happen in this case, but but the potential for harm was 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 very significant.
1: One of the I, I posted a comment on Twitter, and it was regarding the peripheral cannula, the dressing being non-inclusive. And I got a couple comments and I know Ramsey has a list of um, some of the comments that came back, but one of them was basically it's a peripheral cannula and it doesn't look like there'd be any problem with that dressing being lifted because bacteria really aren't going to crawl there.
0: You know, bacteria are, are very picky about where they decide to infect the body. They they only prefer certain spots of the corpus.
1: <laughs> but I, th- I know we on this, this team that we're talking right now, all of us, know that that's not the case. And bacteria don't care what porthole they go through because it's a circulatory system. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, Shelley, about the relationship of peripheral
7: cannula bloodstream infections versus central cannula
1: bloodstream infections.
7: We only have one circulatory system, right? It doesn't matter if it's a central line or a peripheral line. If we leave an opportunity, if we leave a door open, We put our patients at risk of infection, and certainly when it comes to dressings and infections, it's not just my work that has looked into this, but Jean-Francois Timzit published the study that looked and took us beyond just standards and guidelines, and whether they're American or British or from anywhere in the world, they all emphasize the importance of that intact dressing. But when Timzit looked, his study actually showed, and it was specific to central lines, but the the reasoning holds true that when we have those non intact dressings those dressings that are no longer fully adhered to the patient's skin that as we change those and if that's happened more than twice the patient's risk of bloodstream infection increases more than 3 fold so we're not just looking at a small risk or a hypothetical increase risk but the numbers he saw in his study were We're we're huge. And we see that in our own work that we've shared at the Ava Scientific meetings when we go back retrospectively and look at bloodstream infections, even knowing that electronic medical record is not our best source to capture all of the story. But we'll see disrupted dressings or dressings that are prematurely changed, like in 25% of our infections. And that holds true for our peripheral line bloodstream infections, as well as our central line associated bloodstream infections.
8: Yeah, I just wanted to say, this is Russ Nassau. I think, you know, the points are very well made both by Ramsey and by Shelley. And as I always say, you know, the bugs don't care what you call the line. And certainly the lawyers don't care what you call the line. And And I was shocked by the... Some of the posts that remarks that i got to my twitter post just at the level and lack of competency that's out there with respect to the responses and in my opinion this photo of this very happy seemingly happy guy uh who could you know in the future develop an adverse event this photo certainly could be key and, and be in a sense a roadmap to liability so Fortunately, he's in the UK where litigation isn't as big an issue as it is here, but I can tell you here, should an adverse event occur uh, in the future to someone like this, and they have a photo like this, it's not going to take very much to uh, develop a substantial legal case. Yeah, the,
0: th- thank you for adding the, the legal side for, for the states uh, to, to the conversation, Russ, uh, and that, that is a good uh, segue to, I think, the before we get into some of the the pushback that we got online, uh, talking specifically about uh, British anesthesiologists, because they were by far the most vocal stakeholder in our comments, pushing back on that Ava had shared a photo uh, without context from before the, where the patient had come from and where with, without context to where they were going. It was just a snapshot in time of a patient uh, post-operatively showing off an arm with two cannules in it. And, and I'd like to, to throw this to Stephen for, for commentary since he is, uh, he's in the UK right now and, and is most familiar with the healthcare system and with British anesthesiology. Uh, Stephen, can you speak to the practice that you saw in that snapshot and what uh, what's generally accepted in any sort of uh, commentary you would have around best practice for peripheral IV cannulas in the UK?
4: Yeah, of course. Um, I think uh, just to go very quickly back to your first question, I mean, what shocked me wasn't it wasn't just the material red flags uh, of of issues that we can all pick out on this patient's arm but it was it was as much this symbolic uh picture that this was uh telling those who are experienced um in this area that this kind of told a story of probably what practice was uh, led before this picture and very potentially what practice was going to lead after it. I really would like to say I don't think this is about British uh, anesthesiologists. As an organisation, we observe uh, all sorts of aseptic procedures all over the place, all over the world, in different settings. And the only surprise to me that people were so surprised. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't not uh, uncommon. This is common practice. Uh, and it's a big concern for us.
1: No, Stephen, it's a common practice across the world. It's not a common practice just for England or no. for France. This is
4: absolutely. We would. I would. I would just suggest this is this is common practice wherever we travel, mm-hmm. and we've we've had some really interesting insights recently where we've uh, been fortunate enough to witness practice in some very challenging healthcare settings in in Africa, and I'm not going to go into that, but just to say that we were amazed by people working in healthcare situations with half the equipment and opportunities we have to do a good job. Uh, But armed with the right principles, we're practicing uh, equally uh, as well as, as many of us with uh, in in a lot better settings and with better equipment and, and so on. So this isn't about just about equipment. This is about knowledge and uh education. Stephen do you think that because this is such
0: a common practice that lent itself to the the age-old cliche the age-old pushback but that's the way we've always done it how could it be bad if we do it this way all the time do you you think that that might have helped create this I mean it was pretty vocal in in the pushback specifically from that stakeholder that, uh, hey, we do this all the time. Are you accusing me of something?
4: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, we do a lot of research uh, in in this field and there's a lot of researchers in this room. Uh, and a lot of that research is is very rightly on the various nuances of IV practice. And we, we all can get very excited on whether we clean a hub for 10 seconds or five seconds. But I really think we need to be researching why intelligent Highly skilled professionals just don't understand these basic fundamental practice risks. All right, we're going to now read some of
0: the objections and comments that the, the story that we put on on Twitter about Andy Murray uh, received back. I'll, I'll read where they came from. So the first one I'll, I'll get to is from Alberto, who is at 71D4L on Twitter. Uh, Alberto asks, the IV site isn't in the inner, elbow, inner side elbow usually, is it? I've rarely seen IVs in the middle of the forearm. Would any of our vascular access specialists like to address that comment? That wasn't the best
1: part of the picture for me, is that it was in the flat of his arm. It, was, it could be dressed ideally. And I think to the Alberto's comment, it's sad that that's where he sees most of his IVs. Because having them in the AC is problematic for a variety of reasons.
5: You know, I would say, um, I can't, I'm sitting here listening to all of this, and it, it just gets me so um, passionate about what we're trying to do and how we're trying to educate. And as a university educator, you all know that my focus and passion is addressing the curriculum that guides the knowledge and the attitudes regarding vascular access, not only you know, talking about skill acquisition, which we know is a necessary component, obviously, knowing where to place an IV and when to place an IV. But in pre-licensure, as well as post-licensure, they must learn best practice before they take up a needle and perform a procedure that can and does cause real harm in a patient. From my perspective, and I, I know this doesn't Uh, address your question or Alberto specifically, but, but we have a unique generation of learners, at least here in, in our United States area, that will challenge what you tell them and they demand that you give them evidence to support what you're teaching them. And, and I would tell you that I love these types of students because they want to learn it the right way. And I, I, many of us were there many, many years ago for some of us. Um, you know, when they when they do challenge us and then when they learn, they go out into the healthcare systems and they challenge the cultures and they challenge the individuals that I would say maybe have become passive and sloppy in their practice. And as Ramsey brought up that um, we've always done it this way mantra, which we know is in nursing. We know it's in medicine and healthcare in all disciplines. It should never be accepted as an answer to a question, um, or a challenge regarding patient care procedures and outcomes. I think we know that. So with Ava, you know, I truly believe that curriculum changes in that pre-licensure education will be one of the most impactful ways for us to change this paradigm of delivering best practice in vascular access, not only insertion, but in care and maintenance as Shelley talked about.
7: This is Shelly and I just was gonna add when we look at outcomes across these devices and if we're truly looking at vessel health and preservation and, and this beautiful goal of maybe a one-stick hospitalization, by choosing a site like the anacutable fossa or the hand, which are historically popular sites, The work of Dr. Ricard and the Avatar Group in Australia, I believe, suggests complication rates of infiltration and phlebitis that are two and three times higher by choosing those sites, those areas of flexion versus the forearm. So when we look at how long do those lines last, oftentimes we're going to see that they're they're developing complications that prevent them from truly seeing us through that full course of therapy. And I think we need to weigh that against the perceived ease of insertion is, but what happens afterward?
8: Yes.
9: You know, one of my concerns as people have voiced is that I think it's very common uh, for people to think exactly what that it is expected to be in the ACF. And you know, we, do, we still do see it, and I think it, it's, it's a shame that uh, we need to, we have a lot of work to do around the education for that. Uh, but because it's so commonly seen and really unfortunately acceptable, uh, I think the risks for the patient are so high, not just with infection, but with also the phlebitis and extravasation risks and just the pain. You know, back to the patient, when I see patients coming uh, out of my emergency departments and going to the units, the general units, they have a lot of discomfort, uh, and not just the clinical signs, but just physical pain, and, and they lose trust with the clinicians that have to restart that IV. And I, I think, for me, as as a nurse educator, and, and dealing with novice nurses and senior nurses as well as lab technicians and other and even physicians, you know, I, I think that the patient perspective of that and the loss of trust and and the ongoing pain that they feel from uh, AC insertion and complications related to that, I think that's significant, and it really affects the patient's journey throughout our whole healthcare system.
0: Well said, Jocelyn, and and. Judy had talked about the the best part of the insertion being that it was in the the middle of the arm and not in the AC or in the hand. Anyone want to make any comments on what appears to be two peripheral IV cannulas in the cephalic vein?
9: Yeah, you know, that, again, that was one of my key flags right there was when I saw that picture posted. It might not be, and I saw some other uh, posts saying that, you know, they might be veins that are parallel to each other. Uh, maybe not the exact same vein, but regardless, those sites look very close in proximity, you know, in proximity to, to each other. For one, whether it's the same vein or not, and I'm not sure, and maybe Stephen and Josie can clarify. It looks like there's a pink gauge and a green gauge. Is that related to? Does that correspond directly with an 18 and a 20 gauge? I mean, those are very large gauge needles, and I'm assuming the lengths would be, you know, three quarter to an inch, or maybe 1.25 inches. You know, just the 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 physical Characteristics of the catheters that we know in general, regardless if we're in Canada, the US, or the UK, uh, the gauge size and the gauge length in that one small area absolutely concerns me.
5: This is Andrea. To your your point, Jocelyn, I think one of the first things that I wondered about too is why why two seemingly back to back. But I was interested in a comment that defended that, um, stating that they put in a smaller IV to put the patient to sleep. And after they were asleep in, the, in theater in the operating room, they put in a larger IV. Um, I was not familiar with that practice. It's probably because 18-gauge IVs hurt more so than the 20. That would be my yeah, guess.
9: And it does look like that if, if it is color-coded, like we uh, assume, it does look like the smaller gauge is more uh, distal. Right, that the 18 or the larger bore, I'm going to assume is is more proximal. Um, But again, the real estate in that, you know, in that area on his on the patient's arm there is not very large, (laughs) not a large area.
0: It speaks to uh, Dr. Chopra, but also uh, Dr. Mauro Pitaru, talking about the algorithms that are used for both this device selection and site selection. And you had already referenced Jocelyn vessel vessel health and preservation. You, You made two sticks. Uh, there, there are devices that <laughs> single devices that you can use for both right
1: and by looking at the picture I'm kind of just doing a little bit of measurement and it appears if it's a 1.25 inch um, cannula it will almost come to where the new insertion site is possibly so the infusates are going to be very close to one another if they're going to infuse on both
0: I'm going to read a um another uh, Twitter comment that, that is relevant to what we've been discussing. This is from Yelena Milosevic, who is uh, under, at underscore J3, L-E-N-A underscore. And this is a series of threaded tweets that she sent to the AVA account. of uh, The stopcock is specifically what she's referring to. And, and I'm going to rely on uh, Stephen Rowley to talk a little bit about the stopcock. Uh, stopcock isn't the problem uh, if you uh, if you use it, if you always take it the new sterile stopcock and don't close it again. You can work, quote unquote, sterile and clean every time you use it. If you make the stopcock dirty, then you don't use it. Uh, the lines should look better. And there are two different cannulas, referring to the green and pink ones in the photograph. But also two PIVs in one vein is okay. Of course, depending on the on the medications, it is okay. The arm hair doesn't need to be clipped. The blood pressure cup, which is, uh, now I'm speaking for myself, the blood pressure cup, which is on the same arm as the two uh, peripheral IVs. The blood pressure cuff is upside down so and can stay on, on that arm if you need to measure blood pressure often. The cannula can be on the left arm. The blood in the IV tubing can be rinsed after a blood transfusion. I see bad fixation of cannulas, but you don't die from that. After almost 30 years of working in hospitals, I, I know that experience. That is the one thing I can say is that doesn't mean we shouldn't work clean and care about it. I do every time. After reading this, it looks like a very small wound could cause a bloodstream infection. So should we put everyone with infusion in a sterile room and work 100% sterile? There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, may
4: I? This is Stephen.
1: Please, please.
4: Yeah, I'm, I am I hope you can see me scratching my head here on that one. But um, that is hard to unpack. I think the thing that struck me there was the concept and understanding of sterile versus clean. Um, I think that's underpins a lot of the confusion and ambiguity uh, in practice in this area. The framework we use, ANTT, doesn't talk in terms of sterile and clean, but I won't go into that now. I I don't know where to start. To to me, the the issues here are there's a lot of unnecessary equipment on that patient's arm, and uh, by the point where he's cut well out of theatre, you'd kind of expect that to have been taken out. I think the point I'd just like to make is that there were some comments earlier about the number of cannulas uh, Andy had put in, and I don't think we can really judge from this photograph uh, the justification of that. I think we have to accept that they were put in for uh, for good reason. But the point I'd make is that in England, it's quite typical practice for when a patient comes out of a operating theatre to have uh, cannulas of this size and capped off with these kind of one, once use only caps, uh, i.e. not a closed system, essentially an open system, and with stopcocks. I would say that the vast uh, majority of practice would, would not then be reflected in the ward. So in most wards would remove that and they would get rid of the stopcock, they would put a closed system in place, they would have injectable bungs, and they would immediately reduce the risks. The question for me is, I think it's about time we join these things up. I think the anaesthetist should be working in a way that is establishing IV access that can be used for the operation and can be used thereon afterwards.
1: You know, Stephen, that's a great point. And a question for you is, how do you think we reach them? Because we... uh... Um, I I got a lot of kickback on a couple of my tweets on this as well and thinking that I was um, attacking or what have you, but it, it can't be an us versus them because they're all our patients. And yeah. I don't know. How do we, how do we get there?
4: When you say that, do you mean an anesthetists?
1: And those as well as even some of the other surgeons at times to where, it, it appears like we do have a little bit of a disconnect at times.
4: Yeah, as far... yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. Um, I think you know, at, at the risk of picking on the anesthetists and, and people who are working in the OR, it is a it is a, a specialty that works in an isolated environment, often quite disconnected from uh, the rest of the hospital. And we do do we do as an organisation see. Quite a disparity between the two. I would also say, in 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 some defence of that, an anaesthetists. We we work with many uh, fantastic uh, and inspirational anaesthetists right at the forefront of actually trying to improve uh, anaesthetic uh, aseptic care. Uh, and we work with a number of of those in in your country, uh, Dr Antonio Colosio. Uh, to name but one, who's pioneering a, a project, uh, I think at Dartmouth and is it I think Georgetown, uh, with Randy Loftus and co, trying to improve standards in the anaesthetic department and support those guys to uh, meet current day guidelines and find innovative ways of of getting around some of the the very real challenges and differences there are in the OR in the OR room uh so it's, you know this isn't all bad and and there's a lot of good out there too but i just have to say we we do we do overall see a disparity between anesthesiology stroke or or care and um the and other areas of hospitals and i think we just need to close that gap working a little bit more closely together thanks Stephen.
0: It's, uh in line with uh some of the you know, the explainers on on twitter maybe you can you can add some clarity to this, a lot of jokes, a lot of cheeky uh, comments about the difference between public and private healthcare uh, in the UK um, and how the various, I mean, I think that that's an opportunity to speak to healthcare delivery globally. Pathogens and veins don't really care not only about where they're entering the bloodstream, (laughs) but they don't really care about what the the healthcare payers or how they operate or how healthcare economics uh, happen to be used in, in, politically in the countries where they are infecting patients, that B- bacteria are completely removed from from the economics of healthcare delivery or the systems of practice. Is that, uh, is that too casual, cavalier to say when, when talking about public versus private?
2: I, I'd like to address that because I just very recently had surgery as a public patient in a hospital in Ireland. And received exceptional care. No distinction was made with my care and anybody else's that I could see. And I had more visits from the surgeon and from the um, you know main staff in the operating room far more than I would have done here in the U.S. So it was outstanding, outstanding, I have to say, care. And so I don't think that there is a huge disparity that I have seen, and I have not heard my family. Who rely on the British health system for their entire care say anything otherwise?
0: It, it's just an easy, it's just
4: a low hanging fruit joke, is what you're suggesting. It's an easy
2: way to I, I, I would say so. Uh,
4: I would, sorry, this is Stephen. Uh, I would concur with that. I, uh, obviously, based in the UK, we, we, we work with a lot of private and NHS hospitals. Uh, I don't see anything in this picture that says private or NHS. The picture we're looking at there could be in either.
2: This is Josie again, I, I would like to make a comment about when I first looked at that photograph, um, For two things that made my stomach sort of lurch. One was that yes, we see that, that is isn't an isolated case. We see that in hospitals all around this country. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us, as I think somebody else mentioned. And the other thing is that when you look at it more closely, there are things in that picture that are critical thinking skills that should have been applied even if somebody knew absolutely nothing about vascular access. And by the look of the picture, the patient was already in PAR or on the floor, at which time they would not be in the care of an anesthesiologist or the surgeon. They would have been in the care of the nursing staff. And so they should have noticed these very critical things and, and, and taken care of them when, the, the patient, when they saw that on the patient. The blood pressure on the same side as the IV site, no dressings, incorrect dressings, all of that would be a critical thinking skill that you should have in the basic nursing care. That was what astonished me the most.
0: Uh, the, just about every one of our stakeholders when, when we were looking at the photo was in an agreement that there was a lot of room for improvement there and despite not knowing all the particulars of where Mr. Murray had come from aside from his hip resurfacing surgery Uh, his procedure. We knew that he was in a position where a lot of those things could have been taken care of, like the blood in the cannula, like the the non-occlusive dressing, like the location of the blood pressure cuff. Um, And that leads me to the the next comment I want, I think a a big opportunity for us to clarify, and and this may be uh, a semantic discussion between Americans and and the British here. Uh, There was a lot of comments about one of the pieces of guidance in the annotated photo where uh, the patient's arm was recommended to have the hair clipped. And we got a lot of pushback that shaving, basically applying that, that clipping and shaving, those two terms were used interchangeably. Is, is, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk about that. Judy, you want to discuss the guidance around clipping hair uh, on a patient uh, where, where there's a vascular access insertion site versus shaving, which we, we 100% do not recommend? I would love to.
1: But in fact, um, I would like to involve Sheila Hale on this. She and I spoke about this earlier today, and Sheila, I think um, from our conversation earlier, will you add add some comment on this? Sure. Um, I was just going to say, as to some of the comments that were
3: made, like Ramsey just read, it was amazing to me that even high-level, highly educated healthcare clinicians, they just don't realize the impact of using incorrect terminology. It may seem like semantics and it may not seem like a big deal on the surface but if you don't clip if you don't clip hair because you think you can't shave and it's two different things then you end up with a dressing that just floats above an iv site and, and it's not intact so the definition of a dressing that is protecting this iv site is that it is intact and it cannot be intact if there's so much hair that it can't adhere to the skin.
1: So true, so true. So the difference being is clippers are single use, uh, surgical clipper head that floats above the skin and doesn't actually shave the skin. So there, it's not a razor. And single single use, you pop the head off, throw it in the trash, get another one for the next patient after you wiped it down. So the problem with a razor is the micro tears in the skin. And it opens up lots of opportunities for those little critters to crawl down and create havoc. But our clippers don't, and that's the usefulness of them.
0: Yeah, the, the World Health Organization SSI bundle was referenced several times, and that talks about not shaving and avoiding shaving sites because of the micro abrasions that that creates. So I wonder if I do wonder if clipping and shaving are used interchangeably. But like you said, Sheila, this is uh, it, it's this is I hate the term common sense. But when you've got a whole bunch of hair at the site, you're just creating a tent, right? <laughs> the, the, right. the dressing is over the site, and it's not occlusive. And you've now created a, a an environment that's more conducive to infection. And
7: I want
1: to reach out to some of the men out here in particular, because generally men are hairier. When we rip rip a Band-Aid off of hairy skin or a hairy area, I don't think anybody likes that. It's Back in the day, I think I'm dating myself, but they made this torture device for women to shave their legs called it epilady and it, <laughs> and the people that giggle know what i'm talking about and it was these coils that wrapped around hair on your leg and it just ripped them right out and that's similar poor andy murray when they pulled that dressing off that couldn't have been fun so having clipped skin to where the dressing could be pretty and pristine and occlusive everywhere is doing him a favor
0: so uh, on behalf of at Welsh Gas Doc, which I'm, w- I'm wondering is gastroenterology, but at Welsh Gas Doc and at Rohit underscore uh, Silhi, who has identified himself as a, as a young uh, medical doctor, what is your evidence base for the routine trimming of hair before peripheral vein cannulation? And keeping in mind the context of what we just discussed, are we using shaving and clipping interchangeably? We're not. So what is your evidence base for what you just described, both Sheila and and Judy, uh, clipping the hair, re- reducing the length of the hair before cannulation. So there is
3: ev- there's evidence supporting in a surgical arena that you don't cut the ch- the hair or clip the hair, and you certainly don't shave it at all, unless it's going to interfere with adhesive, you know, dressings uh, adhering. And then you do clip it, you don't shave it. So it, I think that's quite. Um, it's quite easy to extrapolate that to an IV. It's an invasive procedure. It goes through the skin into the bloodstream. And I think it's it's the same as if you were in a surgical suite.
0: So you're using clinical judgment, looking at a a hairy arm, to say that Mm -hmm. this dressing will have trouble uh, being occlusive because of the hair at the site. So we should clip it, not shave it, clip it to enhance the occlusiveness of the dressing. Is that what you were saying? Yes. Uh, I will go on to another uh, objectionable comment from Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at one from Russ Nassau, who's on our discussion right now. This photo is a roadmap for plaintiff's attorneys on poor vascular access and potential adverse events. We we talked about how that was uh, far more likely in, in the U.S., but it, it does speak to the broader point. Andy Murray is not the first person to to take a photo or, or to publish a photo of themselves in an acute care setting. Uh, this is, I mean, are, everyone in... In, in the Western world at least and, and beyond is equipped with a smartphone they've got social media they share just about everything I would go so far to say that, that they overshare and and there's a lot of uh, there's there's ample opportunity across healthcare for people to expose what the, unintentionally the level of of catheter care that they're getting it's the most visceral part of I mean you can't see uh, mr. Murray's resurfaced hip you can see his two IVs uh, what what uh, is is there any sort of uh, cautionary tale here for what healthcare systems around the world can do to make sure that uh, they're doing the optimal catheter care when no one's watching because all it takes is one post to instagram and and you've got hundreds of thousands of people looking at suboptimal cap- catheter care
8: Ramsey, this is for us NASA.
0: You know, I think the, the problem
8: here is is what everyone has you know talked about, but I think there's an underlying problem here that I that I talk about often and that Shelly talks about often, and that is there's absolutely no respect for the PIV. Nice. We just do not think of it as an invasive device. People wear it, as Andy is in this photo, as kind of a badge of of, of merit. I, it doesn't even seem to register to them that this is a device that can make them equally as sick as any other line.
0: Now, hundreds and of I can
8: assure you that if, if, if this was a central line or a pick, things would have been totally different. But because it's just a PIV, I don't think anyone was even really paying attention to this. And, and that's really a whole problem is that it's such a commonly used device that we've since we we've essentially lost interest in even caring about the care and maintenance of this device after it's in place yeah russ
1: i agree i think it's similar to alarm fatigue we see them everywhere you hear alarms everywhere and they're
0: ignored yeah what's the big deal i just i have 10 on my unit right now but they don't they don't have sirens there's no smoke coming out of them uh, why why are you making a big fuss you you know you
7: guys are this is shelly you're making me (laughs) Making me very uncomfortable. I know you guys don't believe that. I know none of us on this believe that, but we have to understand the harm that these devices cause. And any life can be your li- any line can be in your lifeline. We know that, but the numbers are out there, even though they are not systematically captured by every organization in every state in every country. The overview done by Leonard Mermel last year is saying 23% of nosocomial catheter-related infections are associated with those devices. And if we look at the thing that scares probably many of us the most when it comes to infections, there's plenty of things that can happen with vascular access, and I know it is so much more than just infections. But just keeping it in that purview, when we look just at Staphylococcus aureus, often thought of as one of the most serious Pathogens to get in the blood, an average of 38% of the infections he saw in his study were from infected peripheral IVs. So trying to move beyond the, as you said, it's not just a peripheral and, and certainly not a just in case line, because the risk that can come along with it can harm our patients
5: irreparably. This is Andrea. Judy, or, or I'm sorry, not Judy. Shelly, I want to thank you for bringing up the Mermel, um document, because I believe that I used that in my reply to one of the uh, Twitter responses that didn't think that what we were saying was with a lot of merit. And I would, I would also say that I, we're not listening to our patients. Um, and when I say we, not those of us that are very passionate about this topic, but we're not listening, we, as a general healthcare provider that they are concerned about what's going on with the multiple sticks, the, the sites that they see and what's happening to them as um, patients, whether in hospital, out of hospital. Um, so I think you bring up an excellent point, both you and Russ. This
2: is Josie. I just wanted to add here that I think this is the optimal time for really to push toward a sterile procedure for a PIV placement because as long as we continue to see enormous protection for the placement of a pick or central line, and we still treat a catheter placed just a few inches below that as a clean procedure, nobody is going to really take seriously that peripheral IV, in my opinion.
4: I take the point about um, we could raise the bar and maybe improve standards, but two points. One is... um, there's a lot of confusion around terminology and and I think we could just illustrate that now, that we I'd probably have to have a chat with Josie to establish exactly what she means by a sterile and clean technique. Then I'd explain to her what I meant by an aseptic technique. So point one, we need we need to get the language right and we need to understand what we're talking about. In we promote a, a procedure called ANTT aseptic non-touch technique. And our experience is that you don't have to go so-called sterile to put a cannula in. What you need to do is get people to understand the principles of aseptic technique, understand the risks, and be able to apply them to whether you're a peripheral procedure or a central procedure uh, appropriately. So there's a lot of issues here which we won't have time to cover.
1: I think you and I are going to be talking about that again very soon. Yeah. which I'm excited about. Ramsey, I wanted to go back real quick because earlier when you said, what's the evidence on clipping? And unfortunately, I had a hard time getting my mute button done mute. So I just wanted to pop in here on that. There's a ton of evidence to have a clean, dry, and intact dressing. And the evidence is clear that when you need to trim um, or get rid of excess hair, we need to use clippers. So the evidence is strong to use clippers when appropriate. Now, if you have an 80-year-old lady with prendazone skin, don't use clippers. You don't need to. If you have someone that has um, excess hair of, on their arms, legs, wherever you're going to put whatever you need, we need to clip, clip their hair appropriately so. So is the evidence written in stone? Is it level one? Is it perfect? Probably not, but we as clinicians have to be able to think ourselves out of a box and do the safest thing for our patients.
0: Sound judgment. The, the the goal is a clean intact dressing.
1: Correct. Correct. And the evidence is abundant, overwhelmingly abundant on that.
0: Going to uh, move on to a couple of comments I think are, that that create an opportunity for uh, the the vascular access enthusiasts in this round table to to take a stab at um, <laughs> both of these and, and I'm already I'm already starting to feel the grimace's from from what I'm about to read, this is from, and I'm I'm, I'm apologizing for shaming people from Twitter. This is from at Bry W Bry. The only problem I see is he's got lovely veins on the back of his hand. I would love to have a stab there. Second uh, <laughs> comment I'll, I'll 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 share is from at Kate Madeline. Visible blood in the in the tubing is ordinary. When it was in mine, I kept saying, "Is this okay?" And everyone was like. Yeah, so we've got stabbing veins in the back of the hand and blood hanging out in a, in a peripheral IV cannula as being okay. Would anyone like to to speak to either of those two tweets?
9: Yeah, you know, the blood in the tubing, it, you can't really see into the cannula, but uh, the tubing itself, um, and I, I think I'm aligned with what some of the tweets had responded to that, in that it, it could be due to the blood pressure cuff there. <laughs> And the ongoing monitoring of his blood pressure cuff, which also seemed to be upside down, so I didn't quite understand that. You know, that was probably leading to the blood accumulation and unable to clear it. You know, like someone had said, we don't really know the full picture of what was infusing. Was it on a pump? Was it infusing at 100 mils an hour? Was it infusing at 50 mils an hour, TKVO? I mean, there are other aspects and factors that... um, we don't know the full picture, which is true, but yeah, the blood in the tubing is, is completely, uh, uh, you know, as as Josie brought up about the nursing care, that, that, that should be unacceptable and and it's completely unnecessary and, and preventable and avoidable. So the fact that it it has become this generalized acceptability of, Oh, it's okay. There's, there's blood in the tubing, Um, you know, no problem. Uh, That that's, that's a serious concern. And, and, I mean there's an emoji for how I'm thinking like my mind is blown by some of the uh, what was what was in the picture what uh, someone had posted to refute our our comments on it and then some of the tweets it's actually mind-boggling to to think that patients that are reading those people that are that could be patients future patients are are thinking well there's such debate of, about this maybe it is okay to have blood in the tubing Maybe it is okay to have two IVs in one hand, in one vein. I mean that, from the patient perspective, that's deeply concerning. So this is Ken Simington
6: and uh, I would count myself amongst the ignorant regarding PIVs until the last couple of years when my eyes have been opened up. And all of the objections that we have to Andy Murray, Sir Andy Murray's tr- treatment, uh, as posted in the uh, photograph, uh, are based on strong evidence. Uh, so we're not just doing this to, uh, because uh, we have uh, nothing else to do, and we don't uh, we don't uh, have better things to do. We are really concerned about these things, and keep this in mind, anybody in the audience. That over each year, over a billion PIVs are placed, one billion PIVs each year, and about one to two percent of these can be considered to be the sources of bloodstream infections, which equals about 10 million infections. A year from peripheral IVs. These are not innocent catheters being placed into patients. And it really bothered me when you asked earlier about Andy's uh, uh, picture. What was the first thing that came to mind? Is I I thought he had nothing to be smiling about because that he was innocent. And most of our patients know very little, if anything at all, about peripheral IVs. And that is our job. And that is the goal of our society: is to advance patient care and vascular access through. Uh, better practices and better outcomes. So uh, hopefully this podcast is going to help open people's eyes.
1: Well said, Ken. And be, being an interventional radiologist, it's, um, you're, you've dealt with a lot more central lines than you have other than using
8: PIVs. Hey, Judy, this is Russ up. You know, it just goes to, again, the clinician and patient acceptance and lack of knowledge with respect to suboptimal care. They really don't understand it. Patients don't understand that pain isn't normal. Patients don't understand that their arms shouldn't look totally bruised when they come out of the hospital. Uh, I think there's just this acceptancy of things that shouldn't be happening because they really don't understand good practice.
1: Agreed. As far as, and sometimes patients blame themselves because they say they have bad veins. Nobody has bad veins. They aren't inherently bad. They they may move they may be deeper but that's why we have ultrasound. But um, to go back to your question though Ramsey about the the PIV in the why isn't it in his hand?
0: Veins in the hands kind of like veins, veins in the, the hands. They're so obvious. I can I can hit that from across the room.
1: Of course you can. And there's areas of flexion and it's painful and it's harder to keep a dressing on and it will piston. So there's a lot of reasons not to go there. To but to have it on the forearm flat part of the arm or the aspect where they had it in the cephalic vein, those are beautiful. The dressing will stay there for weeks, will hopefully get changed, but it'll stay in place without pistoning and irritation, creating thrombosis or phlebitis. So there's, there's many reasons to stay away from that area and get to a nice flat area where we can put a gorgeous dressing on
2: it. For a long time, it was felt that you had to start low and work up the arm. And so people became very accustomed to putting IVs in the hand. And I think that thought still exists, that you stop there and you work up the arm, so you're not having to retreat back after you've um, accessed the vein and not been successful. Good point. Good point, Jess. Not, not that I agree with that, but I think that is uh, something that is inherent in people's minds still today. Yes, I would have to
9: agree with that, with what Josie's saying. I mean I think the visible ones, like that person said, he could he could see it from a mile away or I could stab that. Um and, and as we know as vascular access specialists, the veins that we see aren't necessarily the best veins. They're the ones that usually infiltrate right away, you know, they have a very uh fragile wall. Um you see problems as soon as you enter uh the cannulate the vein right so um maybe and i don't know was that was that, that tweet from a a physician did they say or a or a, a lay person
0: about the Probably. going to stick in the hands yeah uh, it, 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 you know you can be whoever you want to on the internet
9: <laughs> but yeah.
0: uh, i think it's from a nurse
9: okay so you know i i think from a lay person or a non clinician they might say well, of course you're going to go for that one. It's, all, it's on my hand. It's, it's easy to see. But as we know, as, as people that are, are teaching and, and doing it every day, those ones aren't the best ones. And I've also talked to patients that have had IVs in the hand. Um, and even though it was a one-stick, uh, easy procedure to get it in, the some of them had lasting effects after the infusion. Even if it was just a one-dose uh, infusion, they, they get a lot of bruising, some of them. There's a lot of discomfort once that IV is, is removed in the, from the hand.
1: And to your point, Joss, when it's in the hand, the dilutional factor is minuscule. The blood return yeah. that you get from there, if you're trying to dilute out a harsh chemical, God willing, we're not giving anything too harsh there. But if by chance you're giving a dose of vancomycin, a one-time dose, there's no dilution coming out of the hand. The blood return there is five to maybe five cc's max of 10.
9: Right. And even for an, an, for an anesthetic, for a, you know, a procedure, uh, that's going to hurt. It's going to sting. And to get, it, to get the IV in is just, is just like 1% of the procedure. They, they still have to inject actual medications through that cannula. <laughs> so, <laughs> true, true. You know, getting it, getting it on the first stick, fantastic. But if it's in a little vein in the hand and then you're injecting uh, narcotics, anesthetics, an antibiotic dose here and there for a procedure, I mean, that vein is not going to take, to your point about dilution, is not going to take very much.
0: That's a good comment. Uh, Well, we're going to now move on to just a closing argument. Uh, This has been a great opportunity to advance the the vascular access conversation. We've always talked about uh, Ava being the best kept secret in healthcare and how vascular access, specifically in the area of peripheral IV cannulation, the most ubiquitous, the most common invasive procedure in healthcare, the most underappreciated Uh, It's just so common, so everywhere that we don't have clinical guard up to what the risks could be. So uh, as part of uh, closing comments, this this whole experience over the last 24 hours, what would you like to impart on the global clinical community about vascular access, but also specifically the importance of vigilance and best practice around peripheral IV uh, cannulation? I will let you know what, let's start uh, with the queen mom, Josie Stone your comments about uh, vascular access and what we can learn from what's uh, happened with Andy Murray? Um,
2: I think um, my main comment would be that we have to determine who's responsible for training people. And if we are talking about people in education and nursing schools, I feel that they need to take the responsibility for doing that Um, and not say, well, we'll leave it to a hospital. The hospital, as we know from the the survey that was done for our journal, um, that they throw it back and forth. We don't have time. We don't have time. We have to de- establish that it, there has to be time for this to be taught and taught properly with best principles and best practice in the nursing education programs of our country.
0: Thank you, Josie. Uh, Sheila Hale, closing argument.
2: Well,
3: <clears throat> I'd like to bring it back to the patient. Someone had mentioned him smiling and patients, patients don't know what they don't know. They don't know that that's not the way it's supposed to look. And I have just had so many patients that do not feel empowered to speak up. I've had patients with nerve pain from PICS or even regular, you know, peripheral IVs. Uh, and they don't say anything because they don't feel empowered to speak up. And I think that's part of this picture that Ava is, is really also trying to address. And I think that we need to always keep the patient in the middle of what we do.
0: Thank you, Sheila. Uh, Stephen Rowley in the UK, your closing argument in the champion and advanced vascular access practice.
4: Uh, Yeah, Uh, this is Stephen. I would just like to finish with um, going back to the picture. There was uh, a lot of equipment on Andy's arm and about seven red flags that uh, disturbed us all. I think I'd make the observation that the biggest risk to this patient and any other patient with a PVC is actually not visible in the picture. It's actually the healthcare professional. And no healthcare professional goes to work trying to do harm. So this is about education for me. It's about working out what we want the standard to be uh, between each other and as key opinion leaders and stakeholder organizations like AVA, uh, making that happen. And uh, I think that's the challenge.
0: Well said. Andrea Owens in Indianapolis. Your closing the argument to advance vascular access practice.
5: Well, everyone knows that I have a passion for educating. I, I would, my last words would probably echo some of the comments that Stephen made regarding, for me, how siloed we are in much of healthcare regarding this topic. Um, in the different disciplines. So being able to somehow break down those silos and work collaboratively together within the disciplines between nursing and physicians and those disciplines that are related to what we're doing while keeping the patient at the center of it.
0: Yeah. You talked about silos being so provincial and defensive. This is about putting the patient first and collaborating between surgery and you know, aftercare, the, the units, the wards, and then even after discharge, um, that patient needs to have a portable standard of care.
5: Absolutely. And I believe what we're talking about is a continuum and there need to be no breaks and there are no silos in there. The continuum needs to be a a conversation that we're all part of and the patient is included.
0: Well said. Our uh, epidemiologist extraordinaire, Shelley DeVries, your closing argument in favor of advancing vascular access.
7: Well, I have to say this This was a conversation about one patient, a well-known patient, a well-loved and respected patient, but this is every patient in every hospital, and today we were talking about the transition from the OR to a ward setting, but as we look and hearing each of you say the patient engagement, the patient engagement, our staff education... Um, it echoes so true, we have to go from first point of entry until our patients no longer require vascular access. We need to include them every step of the way and look to help each and every clinician who, who touches our patients literally and figuratively when it comes to their vascular access. We know it can happen, we know we can do it. And I know with Ava, you have, we have an amazing vision and a platform to actually make that happen with what you've shared about Vicarium, it's out there and it's, it, it's, it's in our grasp.
0: Thank you, Shelley. And yes, Shelley's referring to Vicarium, a, a healthcare literacy initiative that you'll be hearing a lot about from Ava in the next uh, coming weeks and months. Uh, thank you, Shelley. Uh, let's go to Russell Nassau. Sir, closing argument as a lawyer, something you're accustomed to.
8: I think what's critical here is we can't and, and we shouldn't let potential liability drive practice around the peripheral IV. We, we have to have respect for this most commonly used catheter, and we're, the only way we're going to get that respect is from improved competency and patient and clinician education.
0: Well said, counselor. Let's go to Ava, Director of uh, Clinical Education, Judy Thompson, before we close with where this conversation all started with Jocelyn Hill. Judy, you're closing your argument to advance vascular access practice.
1: I think it has to be my opening comment because we have so much work to do, but breaking down barriers. um, I I think back to, I'm not sure if it's a book or a presentation from John Nance, but it's about lessons from the cockpit. And it's really about trusting each other, dropping our defensiveness and asking, what can I do better that this wasn't, wasn't meant as a call out, but it's just about what's going on in the world right now. And what can we do to make it better? So this is just a start.
0: Lots of work to do. This is just a start. Uh, we protect the patient, educate the clinician, We're trying to save lines and save veins. And, and Ava is tireless in that. Jocelyn Hill, Canadian, take us home. You, you started this conversation. Why don't you end it for us?
9: Uh, well, I just want to finally that I think what this demonstrates most is that this is a truly a global issue. It's just not in our local, regional, provincial, um, national realms. Nurses, physicians, uh, patients everywhere, like we've all said uh, in our closing arguments here, um, the catheters don't care, the bugs don't care, and it really highlighted to me that um, even through things like social media that I'm not completely comfortable with it. It really shows that it encroaches on in every aspect. I mean, we had people tweeting on there that uh, you know came out of nowhere. They weren't necessarily clinicians. They nece- not necessarily have ever been a patient, but it really touched a lot of people, and there were a lot of comments, and some of them very flippant. But I think. To me it really just highlighted that we have like judy said we have so much work to do and it's really quite exciting that um it it went viral like that because i think it really does matter and people it just made people realize a little bit more and hopefully they'll be more engaged when they go to the hospital or when they're you know involved or engaged in a in a procedure so that for me is what uh, is really important it's back to the patient and hopefully we
0: can reach those people and they can be more involved Thank you, Jocelyn. On behalf of this esteemed roundtable, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to this special episode of the I Save That Podcast. We'd like to all wish Andy Murray a speedy recovery and good luck with his best hip, with his new hip, I should say. Uh, to subscribe to this podcast, you can go to Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. Uh, subscribe to the I Save That Podcast. Leave us a review. Uh, be honest. To uh, learn more about Ava, you can visit www.avainfo.org. Uh, You can visit that same address slash Andy Murray to see everything we just finished talking about. And we hope to see you again soon.